I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. My name is Rohan Seth, and I am joined here today by Nitin Pai and Manoj Kevalramani. One of the most fascinating things about working in a think tank is that we get to read a lot of books, and more importantly, we also get recommended a lot of books that we might not always get the chance to read. Today, end of the year, we take stock. I'm not sure what this, when this podcast is going to be out, but uh, this is the end of December, and um, it's time for us to sort of take stock of what we've read and um, and what we've learned from it. But before we do that, if you like the kind of stuff that we talk about in this podcast, please do check out our courses. The link is, is going to be in the show notes. We start mid January. The courses are completely online, and um, it's a lot more where this podcast is coming from. Right. So, having said that, Manoj, Nitin, welcome to All Things Policy. Nitin, let's begin with um, you and the kind of stuff that you've been reading this year. Yeah, thanks, Rohan. I'm glad to be on the show again. It's our year-end ritual. Uh, and i'm also glad that you mentioned about our gcpp and pgp programs which start in january which are a fantastic way to you know traverse through a huge set of knowledge and uh, books that we all read so in fact one of the things we do is try and read books and put them into the books into the curriculum next year <laughs> so so that's also a knowledge transfer mechanism now you know what happened was you know 2021 being such a relaxed year i had nothing to read there were no books falling out of my ears there were no books in my bathroom there were no books in my uh, car there were no books uh, under my table there were no books under my bed you know my my computer was not uh, overflowing with ebooks so i had absolutely nothing to read you know i i felt i'd read everything in the world right sounds like a peaceful year nitin yeah sounds like a peaceful year for a fictional nitin who lives in some other universe but but what that fictional nitin who lives in some other universe did said that look i don't have any books to read now let me ask some smart people whom i know whom i haven't kept in touch with regularly some whom i've in touch with regularly but some who have not kept in touch with regularly i asked them hey guys tell me one book which you read in 2021 which you would like to recommend and i'm going to recommend this to the others so i wrote to a lot of people and a lot of people got back to me so i have a huge list of books right and quite clearly most of these books I have not read because I just sent out the request a couple of weeks ago. But I've read some of these books because they are some of them are older, some of them are concerning all of us. So I've read some. I haven't read some. I've uh, skipped through some. But all said and done, I think it will be interesting for me to share it with you guys because we can read this together in the coming year. We can go through it as we go through our public policy programs and courses as we teach and we learn, and when we do our research, right? So. I don't have them in any particular order, so yeah, that's what it is. And Manoj, uh, do you have any sarcastic comment add to what I've just said? No, no, not at all. Uh, I mean, I think there is uh, your breadth of reading is far greater than mine, so I'm happy to get more inputs of what kinds of things I should be reading. You know, actually, uh, I I will not take that as a sarcastic comment because breadth of reading usually means you skim through a lot of books without actually reading them. <laughs> but 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 that's true in my case you know i do have no choice but to you know skim through a lot of books put them in a particular inbox for reading at a later date which might not happen 
and then sometimes go into the middle of the pile and pick out some book because it's relevant to you know some work which I'm doing at this point. So that's part of my life. It is stressful, but it is also enjoyable. But let me give an example to start off with, right? So books about the 1971 war, there have been several. And part of our work, Manoj and I work in international relations, looking at what happened in 1965, what happened in 1962, 1971, the arrangements which happened after the war are quite critical to understanding uh, foreign policy today, right? And 1971, this being the 50th anniversary of the war, I was invited both by the Navy and the Air Force to speak at their celebration functions. So, uh, of course, I didn't want to go in to these conferences by repeating what everybody has said. So I was looking for interesting new angles about this, right? And the first book, which was recommended to me by Sham Saran, is this book by Chandrasekhar Dasgupta, Ambassador Dasgupta, about the 1971 war. It's called India and the Bangladesh Liberation War, the complete story uh, or the full story or the definitive story, as it is called. It came out quite recently. And it's typically Das Gupta. You know, for those of you who've read Das Gupta's book on Kashmir, it's a fantastic scholarly study where, where he mixes his ability to think as a system insider with the demands of scholarship, with the demands of popular readership to produce a fantastic book, right? So I've read parts of the Das Gupta book. I've not been able to finish it entirely. But, you know, he sort of squashes some of the popular myths uh, which existed at that point. You know, whether it was Indira Gandhi or Manik Shaw who was responsible for the timing, who was the real architect of the war, what was the interplay between the Bangladeshis and the Indians, what were the reasons for the post-1971 post settlement and so on. And it's an interesting read. And anybody who wants to study the politics of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and the region today and wants to understand the psychology of uh, the foreign policy of these places must read this war. And that means all of us who are in public policy, all of us who are studying defense and foreign affairs, for example, in the Takshashila programs, must read this book. Okay, it's a definitive account. Now, what I find interesting about it, a set of things which are mentioned in the book, but have a much bigger implication for us as uh, scholars of international relations or students of foreign policy. Because 1971, is the year when non-alignment died. You know, non-alignment as a philosophy, non-alignment as a principle, non-alignment as a foreign policy of India died in 1971 because that's the year when Indira Gandhi signed the Treaty of Friendship and Amity with the Soviet Union somewhere in uh, August, I think. March, August, I can't remember. Which meant that, you know, all the thing we said about will be non-aligned between the two superpowers goes into the dustbin because now we are formally aligned with the Soviet Union, and it's a treaty alliance. And it was obviously entered into because we saw a war coming up in the later part of the year, and the need to go to war required us to throw non-alignment into the dustbin, right? And that has a very important uh, significance today when, you know, we talk about strategic autonomy, you talk about, uh, you know, India not being part of any military alliance, not wanting to get into alliance with anybody. But the reality of it is this. If you have a situation where you have to go to war and nobody knows what will happen in a war, you'll have to make some compromises with your dearly held beliefs and dogmas, which might have been useful to you during peacetime, but are no longer useful to you during war, right? And I think that message of realism uh, in foreign policy stands out very clearly about 1971. Manoj, uh, what, what, do you have any views, especially given the current situation? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true, right? Uh, there was a shift that took place where, you know, in 1971 in particular. I, and I think that that's also a stage where, you know, it tells us a little bit about how in, the Indian establishment started thinking about power and the use of power. And what are the different instruments and how do you use them? Because if you go back to Nehru's era, and I mean, I'm talking about this because I was recently going through Ambassador Nirupama Rao's book, and that was one of the things that stuck with me, was that uh, our conception of what are the instruments of power and what is the utility of those instruments was very different from what we would conventionally see as a realist uh, conception of international affairs and instruments. For example, our approach to, uh, you know, to the military. And what purposes can the armed forces be used for? I think that uh, 1971 demonstrated that that shift had taken place decisively, even in that conception. Right. Uh, and I think that's that's uh, that's actually true. And there's a lot of contemporary uh, learnings from there, you know, in terms of what is the role of armed forces in strategy? What is the relationship between the political leadership and the armed forces? How do the armed forces fit into an overall situation where you know, there is war, there is peace, and there's post-conflict resolution. So all of that has very interesting lessons for all of us, and it's something we need to read. But, you know, when speaking about lessons, the other interesting book which I read earlier this year was Nauroji by Dinyar Patel. And now that book won the New India Foundation's uh, Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay Award uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago. And when I asked Nandan Nilakani for his recommendation about uh, books about India, he said Nauroji by far, right? Because it's the story of one of India's earliest political liberals, a liberal nationalist, long before nationalism became a word. And it is also a story of India's history before the freedom movement, you know, India before Gandhi. And it's not a very well-known part of India's history because everything happens in the shadow of Gandhi and the freedom movement. You know, it's almost like there is an object called the freedom movement and Gandhi, which is, you know, 1930s to 1950s. And then whether you shine the light from today towards the past or from the past towards the present, the shadow of that uh, era always uh, captures our attention, right? And a lot of happens, a lot of things happen in the shadow. Now, I read this book about Nauroji because of Anupam Manur, our colleague at Takshashila, who asked me to write a paper about the Swadeshi movement for the Indian Public Policy Journal. So I was reading a lot of books in the original, from written from the 1830s onwards. They're very, very interesting books. Uh, Raja Ramon Roy being one of the earliest instigators of both Swadeshi and nationalism and liberalism in India. Now, the Nauroji book is interesting because uh, Nauroji is the originator of what? Of two things. Okay, let's take a step back. Nauroji is the originator of two things. He's the originator of what I would call liberal nationalism. And the second thing is the originator of this drain theory of economic development. Now, I am completely with Nauroji on liberal nationalism because he showed that the way to fight for liberty uh, is not necessarily one of revolution and violence, but it can be conducted in a dignified, civilized, constitutional way. Uh, I mean, Nauroji stood for elections in the UK, right? And he was a member of the British Parliament. And he used that purge to advocate India's independence. Now, that is something remarkable, right? You're trying to go, it's almost like political kabaddi. You are in the you are in the UK, you are a member of the British Parliament and you're advocating India's independence 50 years before Gandhi came onto the scene, right? Now, what is really remarkable is Nauruji's journey espousing liberal values, merging that with the theory of nationalism and advocating independence for India. 
And I think that was really the ideology of the freedom movement. That is the ideology in the constitution of India, which is liberal in its ideological moorings and nationalist in terms of its vision for a unified Indian state that seeks its own destiny. Right? And all of us, therefore, feel greatly inspired by these two values. Because everywhere in the world, people will tell you that nationalism and uh, liberalism can't sit together. And India is the only country that has shown that it is possible. Although there are challenges to that view today. But I think at the deepest level, most people in India would subscribe to this view of liberal nationalism without even realizing that they are liberal nationalists. So that's the good part of it, Nauraj. Yeah. Let, me play, let me play devil's advocate a little bit over here. When you say that you know the constitution is liberal, what does that liberalism entail? Uh, because a lot of, like for example, from in my sort of from my vantage point, liberalism would entail putting the individual at the heart of you know society. Uh, but here uh, it's actually groups, you know, even in the Indian context also, right? Uh, the nature of the way the constitution is structured, the nature how it's been interpreted and how we've seen things play out, it's essentially been group rights as opposed to individual at the center of things. Well, see, I think uh, I would not agree that group rights are there. In letter, it's still a uh, it's still a constitution that promotes fundamental rights, right? These are individual rights. Fundamental rights accrue to individuals. Fundamental rights do not accrue to groups or any other things. Despite the interpretation and the you know popular imagination of some of these rights, right? Conceptually, fundamental rights accrue to individuals. But we must understand that the constitution is a revolutionary document in a society which up to, you know, 26 January 1952, 1950, did not understand this idea of an individual, right? Because it was, India is a society of groups, it's a plural society of endogamous communities. And it is from this crucible that the constitution of India came into force, right? So uh, you will see the, you know, the history and the social tapestry of India reflected in the way the constitution is interpreted. Which is why I think it's all the more remarkable that the constitution is one of liberty, right? Because, I mean, you read the preamble, it says, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Although there is justice, social equality, uh, social, economic, and political right up front. But liberty, equality, and fraternity are massively liberal, uh, you know, keywords, you know, key phrases. Now, so Nauruji, I, I would think, is the progenitor of the set of ideas and a particular political narrative that became part of the constitution of India and to this day is reflected in the way the Indian Republic ought to behave. Ambedkar's grammar of anarchy speech, for example, is inspired by Nauroji because he says, look, constitutionalism is the way to do this. Now, Dinar Patel's book, Dinar is related to Nauroji. So Dinar Patel's book, of course, talks about how in his later years, Nauroji became more of an extremist, right? He cast aside this moderate face to become a more extremist, which only shows Nauroji was moving with the times, right? But what I think I would take away from this is that it's not about whether the Gandhian method or the revolutionary method or the moderate method worked, which of these worked. What is important is all these methods are important in a complex polity as India. All of them work together. Sometimes they, uh, they are in contention and the contention leads to survival of one particular idea. But at other times, they are mutually reinforcing in creating a sort of an overall Indian approach to politics, liberty and economics. Now, where I would differ with, uh, with Nauroji is this business of the drain theory. So I think he was right in principle in the sense that 
there was a transfer of wealth from India to Europe. But I don't know whether that is something which you would put in the form of a drain theory, where, you know, it's just like, it's like all this. The drain theory implies that, you know, you just drain the wealth, uh, you sucked it out of us, and you didn't get anything in return, right? Uh, and I think there's a lot of intellectual challenge to the drain theory in these days. So while I totally buy the idea that British rule, you know, extracted wealth out of India, I don't think we should, you know, look at it as a, in a pure nationalist sense and saying that this was uniformly bad, you know. There were things that came back to us. Some were in, in, in the form of physical capital. Some was in terms of intellectual capital. So overall, uh, if you have to make a judgment to say that was colonial rule bad, I would agree it was bad. But was it only bad because of economic reasons? Then I would disagree. So it's a nuanced kind of a, a thing where I would, I mean, that's why people like Shashita Rood and others have sort of uh, blown this up and said, you know, empire of darkness, there's terrible things going on. Well, it is true in parts, but there are also other parts which, you know, people like Taru uh, or, or Naroji for that matter didn't really have sense. Fascinating. Rohan? I think that's that's quite fascinating. And before we sort of shift tangents, because there's a few genres that we've covered here, I would like to take a quick commercial break and when we come back, we can talk about some of the other stuff that we've read across democracy and politics. So join us in a bit. Hi guys, welcome back to All Things Policy. I'm joined with Nitin Pai and Manoj and we've had a fascinating conversation about Naroji and about the Bangladesh war, uh, which is sort of the thing I want to sort of hint at here is that I think it's the third time we're doing this podcast. It's been three years. And every time I um, do this with you guys, I realize that I have a certain tunnel vision and I vow to improve this tunnel vision every time and every year I realize that I failed, which is um, a bit of a scam, but we... But not all new resolutions have to be kept, right? Um, so having said that, let's talk about some of the books that you guys said regarding democracy, regarding social reform and so on. Because I think that's a pretty interesting theme to to sort of start up, start this off. Uh, no, Rohan, I'm not going to do so democracy and social reform right away. Because I, I think it's good to change gears and jump into an entirely different territory, right? So one of the persons I spoke to about books was my friend Shobha Narayan. Uh, who's an author uh, and a columnist at Mint. She works on culture and uh, arts and some of the nicer things in life. And I said, hey, you know, what's, what's that book which you would recommend? And she gave me a very surprising recommendation. She says, The Story of the World in 100 Species by Christopher Lloyd. It's about how insects, scorpions, and uh, even uh, plants change the world in such a way that, you know, we don't even realize that these are the things which influence the world that we live in. And uh, she said she's just tired of human, uh, you know, the tired of the human-centric approach to history and the animal-centric uh, and, the, you know, biosphere-centric uh, view of history is pretty interesting. You know, how the world changed under our noses because of insects, scorpions, and so on. And I'm yet to read this book. I'm looking forward to reading it because it's, uh, it's in a genre which I really like. But I want to mention another book which I read this year by Professor Raghavendra Gadakkar of the Indian Institute of Science, who's an ecologist. And his book is called uh, Experiments in Animal Behavior. You know, it's a very prosaic title. Uh, but what he did is he made this book available uh, for free download because he believes that uh, good science, uh, publicly funded science should be available to the people. 
So it's uh, available for download on his website on, and on uh, the Indian Institute of Sciences website. Now, experiments in animal-based behavior is interesting for two reasons. I think the big point he's trying to make in the book is that you can do great science without the need for big grants and expensive equipment. You know, so all the experiments which he relates in his book are all the things that he did with wasps and uh, ants and other kinds of insects in his lab, which, you know, usually is about, you know, normal building with some mesh uh, cages and some paper tubes and some, you know, uh, basically low-cost equipment, no fancy equipment at all, right? Because if you look at modern science, everybody says, oh, let's start with the fMRI machine, you know. Let's start with uh, imagery which will, uh, you know, which will... Uh, sort of, well, let's start with machines that will imagine what your mind is imagining at this point and so on. That's, that's certainly an interesting uh, area of science and I wouldn't uh, disparage it. But Gadabkar's point is that that's not the only way. And even if you are stuck in a small town with a, just a simple lab, you can do great science. Not just ordinary science, but you can do great science. And I love the point which Gadabkar makes. And you know, there are also interesting insights which he finds out about wasps. You know, how do ants figure out the shortest path between, uh, you know, between their home and the place where they find food. How do they communicate with each other? And then you find out that you can reduce it to very simple algorithms, you know. Uh, just follow the scent, you know. The, and the scent is stronger where ants have taken the shortest path because more, pa more ants have taken the path which is shortest and therefore the scent is stronger and then you follow them. You know, it's just so beautiful. And uh, with great applications in computer science and other areas. But uh, I really like that part, you know, where you can look at science, the natural world, the biosphere, and how it connects to the world that we live in, and what insights you might draw for your daily life or for uh, public policy. I don't want to spend too much time about public policy, but yeah, daily life. I think that's quite interesting, especially the, the fact that you don't, you can do great science without the need for such grants. Um, it's uh, It sort of reminds me of a book I read, which sort of really takes you back to the fundamentals of um, of how you can basically use, let's say, data and, and not actually have a huge database or use a software like Tableau or R or uh, Stata. Instead, you can just use concepts like mean, median, and mode to draw good insights and also understand the difference between these insights, sort of make data actionable. Uh, the book is called Naked Statistics by Charles Whelan, and he uses a lot of great uh, contemporary things to explain concepts to us. So, um, yeah, I think there's something there using... I using am not... I'm extremely surprised, Rohan, that you're talking about data. <laughs> what a surprising topic coming from you. <laughs> Who would have seen that coming? Um, yeah, but but I'll tell you something. There's very something interesting. I, I spoke to Nitin Pandit, among the other people who I spoke to about this book. Uh, I, uh, Nitin Pandit is the, the chief of ATRI, who works in ecology, climate change and others. And the book which he recommended, uh, very coincidentally, is called Dear Data by George, Georgia Lupi and Stephanie, uh, let me see, uh, Stephanie Prozevec. And uh, he says, it's a lyrical presentation of how what we observe and what we attend to influences our view of life. So it's a book called Dear Data. I'm looking forward to it. And Rowan, I'm sure you will be interested in reading uh, this book about data, you know, a topic which is of absolutely little interest to you. 
Yeah, absolutely, Nitin. Uh, one thing I do what want to point out is that this is something I'm proud of. It's that I earlier this year I tried to learn a software that does better at data visualization, and I realized that instead of learning more about data where it's stored, its privacy and policies, I think I made a conscious effort this year to learn about what we can learn from information that we gather. So how we can make feedback forms actionable, or how we can sort of the difference between mean and mood. And I thought that was quite useful. So generally the policy angle of data is something I've looked at a lot, but it's actual power that we talk about how we can harness it and how we can use that to predict stuff. It's not something that I had always uh, done. So I highly recommend doing some of that. But um, yeah, it's really nice. I mean, I'm glad that you're talking about learning. I mean, all of us, you know, one of the best things about reading books is that we learn stuff, right? We learn new things about new areas that we didn't know about. And the best part about reading books, which other people recommend to you, is really that you will learn things which you didn't expect to learn. You know, that, that's really a great way to, to learn because you ask smart people around you what they've read and then you read that and then you, you become smart, right? That's, that's really good. You know, on that note, you know, I, one of the smartest people we all know is this guy called Pratap Hanumeta, PBM, as he's affectionately known in Takshashila. So obviously, when I had to ask for book recommendations, I had to ask Pratap. And I said, Pratap, hey, you know, what's the book which you'd recommend? And uh, he said, The Trident of Wisdom by Abhinava Gupta. And Abhinava Gupta is an uh, uh, ancient Indian philosopher. And the book, uh, Trident of Wisdom, is translated by Jaydev Singh. And according to Pratap, okay, I'm just reading out what Pratap says. Abhinava Gupta is the greatest thinker on the most elusive question. And what is the most elusive question? The mystery of consciousness. And I said, oh man, this is a Pratap level, uh, this is a Pratap level uh, book recommendation. To add to this, Pratap says, it's not an easy book to read. It needs several years of dedicated effort to read and understand what Abhidhav Gupta has to say. Now look at this. It takes several years to read and understand what Abhidhav Gupta has to say. And then for people, ordinary mortals like us, it takes us several years to understand and read what Pratap Hanumeta has to say to us. So it's, it's pretty, pretty intense. Okay. So, but I've, I've made a note that uh, I have to read uh, Jabinav Gupta's book. It's very expensive on Amazon. I have to find a library or some place where I can go through the English translation. But I found another book by my friend uh, Rajesh Kasturi Rangan, who runs an organization called Sac Socrates. Uh, he's a cognitive scientist uh, who teaches at MIT. And Rajesh recommended a book called Who Are We? And the author of that book is Rajesh Kasturi Rangan. And it's an insight into the Indian mind. You know, So he takes us through what it means uh, to be an Indian in terms of our mental makeup, cognitively, in terms of you know, our biases, our makeups, uh, how the Indian mind is structured and how the the structure of the Indian mind affects our day-to-day -day life and how, you know, things unwind in the, in the world out, out there. So it's, and interestingly, unlike Abhinav Gupta and Pratap Hanumeta, Rajesh's book is only about 130 pages, you know, it's very slim. You can read it. I think it's probably uh, readable by most readers. Uh, it requires you to have a little bit of a background in uh, social sciences and philosophy, but not you know, it's not compulsory. I mean, it's, it's eminently readable, which is, which is one of the problems with books about philosophy, right? Most books, especially books about Indian philosophy, are so hard to read that you have to be a Pratap 
to spend years reading it and understanding what is said. But, you know, books like Rajesh's make it more accessible. But just on a side note, my good friend Prasenjit Fukan, who works for Google, said that, you know, he's reading this book called The Courage to be Disliked by Ishiro Kishimi. And I think it's a great uh, title. I haven't read it. He said it because he, he found insights useful to deal with his teenage, rebellious teenage daughter and his colleagues at work. <laughs> but I think as think tankers who want to be independent and non-partisan, I think the title of the book, The Courage to be Disliked, seems to be uh, very attractive. I think uh, uh, people like us who are independent and non-partisan tend to, uh, you know, uh, piss off people from all sides of the political spectrum, all parts of the world, our allies, our adversaries, and so on. So, Manoj, do you have any experience in uh, being disliked? Oh, a lot. <laughs> but, uh, I, I mean, I think that uh, there is some... I thought that, you know, when you were talking about this idea of the Indian mind, I think that's a really, really interesting space for one to explore. Because it's really... I mean, when I see things around us today, we see a sense of, uh, you know, defeatist. In some ways, there's this hyper sense of self, uh, which, you know, nationalism captures it, but it's not just that. There is this hyper sense of confidence, uh, but there is, and that coexists with this strange sense of defeatistness. There's a hyper sense of uh, desire for homogeneity, yet which exists in tremendous uh, plurality. And I think that's uh, the sort of dichotomy of how we as Indians think of ourselves and our place in society. I think that's a really interesting, it's not something that's common around the world, right? And that's the nature of our society. It's so diverse uh, and it's so stratified. Yes, there, is, there are so many different bonds of commonality uh, that it shapes our sense of identity very, very differently. And I think that's an interesting space to explore. Yeah, you know, and the thing about defeatism, uh, there's another recommendation which I got from Ingrid Srinath. Ingrid said, uh, she recommends uh, Kavita Krishnan's book uh, called Fearless Freedom. Uh, it's an accessible and non-polemical exposition of patriarchal beliefs in India. And most interestingly, how these can be changed. You know, I really like books which offer uh, pathways to change, you know. Because most, you know, books with about social problems restate the problem in graphic detail, right? Or from a different perspective, which is all very nice. Uh, it's important to understand the, you know, problem in various ways. But what really moves people like me, who's an electrical engineer, so engineers want to solve problems. And as a policy wonk, I also want to solve problems. So people like me, and I think most people who are now in this particular moment in time are looking for ways out of the mess, right? We all know that we are in a mess. Or one way or the other, we are in a mess. Some messes are of our own doing. Some messes have been inherited. But we need to find ways out of the mess. So I haven't read uh, Kavita Krishnan's book. I mean, she's a controversial character. Uh, if Ingrid had not recommended it, I probably would not have read a book by Kavita Krishnan because, you know, the whole left, uh, radical left is a class of genre of books, which I usually, it's my bias and I'm confessing my bias. I sort of, sort of disregard reading them. I said, I've read one, I've read all. Uh, you know, this is going to be a radical leftist kind of an agenda. And I would just sort of leave it out of the way. But since Ingrid has recommended it, I am going to make an attempt to read uh, this book, especially because it's talking about gender issues, which are front, right and center, some of the most important ones which our country faces today. The other one, which Ajita of uh, Westland Books, Ajita is my editor uh, of my upcoming book. 
So Ajita recommended, okay, I'm going to recommend all my books in my, uh, you know, the ones which I've published under context. I said, okay, no, what about serious ones? Can you give me one? Uh, and she says, look, uh, the book by The War of the Poor by Mark Polizotti, which is a book about inequality and the struggle against inequality in the 16th century was really, really nice. It's made to the Booker shortlist, apparently, and that's why she picked it up. Uh, but uh, the struggle for rights and equality in the 16th century I think will be something of interest because we are all acquainted with how uh, the right struggles unfolded in the last 50 to 100 years. But, you know, 400 years ago, it would have been, you know, conceptually a dramatic thing, right? Nobody has thought about inequality or nobody thinks that equality is something which you need to fight for. And then suddenly you go out and fight for this, you know, I think that's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to reading that book. I think um, one thing I would like to add sort of is that both Nitin and I have read a lot of books this year. Manoj actually wrote a book this year, which is, of course, um, Smokeless War, China's Quest for Dominance. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting the title right. But Manoj, while reading, while researching for this book, did you come across any recommendations that you would like to point out? I think if... Uh, so, Rohan, thank you. That was a wonderfully unsettled plug. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think there is... Uh, there's lots that I read on China and perhaps if we do a separate conversation because there is a bunch of books that I can sort of talk about. And I think it's fascinating because this year you've had a whole set of uh, Indian authors who've written uh, really engaging and interesting books on China. So to me, uh, perhaps we can do a second conversation or another conversation where we can talk about this because there's a big bunch of books that I would like, that I can recommend in that. And again, it's awesome to see so many Indian authors writing about uh, the subject because often the grouse has been that uh, and it's legitimately been this sort of criticism and grouse is that uh, you know we tend to look at uh, China uh, particularly from a western lens the intellectual capital is created in the west particularly in the United States and Britain and that gets filtered to us whether it's through news or through analysis and things like that but I think that's the uh, trend is uh, changing and I think that's good uh, so that represents that and I think we probably can talk in another conversation about this sort of stuff. I wanted to talk about a little bit about when Nitin spoke about um, uh, women, gender, inequality, those sorts of things. Uh, I think that, I mean, we were having this recent conversation in uh, an internal uh, discussion forum that we have called Tank Scrub, which we do every Thursday. Over there, uh, one of our colleagues has brought out, had brought out this book, uh, Invisible Women. And I think it led to one of the most fascinating conversations that I've been part of in, in our Tank Scrub conversations through the year because uh, you know often we are so like once said you know you know it is i can tend to be very tunnel visioned in what i'm doing uh, and focused on what i'm doing rather than looking at things around me but that conversation sort of really was insightful in terms of the examples that were given for how do you think about uh, you know discrimination and how do you think about uh, how women are systemically and structurally left out uh, from design of products to, you know, uh, structures of uh, society. I thought that was really fascinating. And uh, I still haven't read the book, I confess. But that's one thing that I want. That's a book that I want to read. Yeah, I think we definitely need to do two more episodes on this. I have a, uh, I mean, we are almost through this week's uh, podcast and I haven't even finished half the list of books I wanted to discuss. And of course, Manoj's uh, reading list is something which I want to uncover in a conversation. So please join us for two more episodes, which will follow. But before we end, I do want to pick up on what Manoj said about China, right? There was another set of books, which was the sort of mirror image of China. Yeah? And in the sense that what is it about the West that made it so powerful, right? 
and uh, my friend uh, V Ananta Nageshwaran recommended two. Uh, one is a book by Joseph Hendrick, who's one of my uh, favorite authors. It's called The Weirdest People. So this is about uh, why the West prospered and what is unique about the Western moment, the Western context that allowed them to prosper. And the second uh, is a book which I've read is by William McNeil, Plagues and Peoples. It's a very old book about uh, epidemics and pandemics, which I started reading uh, right after uh, you know COVID started in uh, February 2020. Uh, so I read it last year. Uh, it's a great book. But as Anant says, it's also a book about you know economic structure and the path of history and why the West could succeed. You know, just the fact that a plague wipes out a large amount of your population raises the you know uh, raises the demand for labor and labor becomes more powerful at a particular point in time with, with relation to capital and that causes economic change of a scale that has consequences even four five hundred years later. So Anand's recommendation, Plagues and Peoples and the Weirdest People uh, are, are really good books to read about the West. There's another book which is coming by Koyama and Jared Cohen. Uh, it's called, I can't remember what it's called, but it's going to be released in 2022. It's about why the West succeeded. right? And I think there are important reasons relating to economic social structure, economic uh, philosophy, uh, individual freedom, which allow us to see why the West succeeded. You know, there might be ideas there which we can uh, learn from and adapt and use it for our own success. I, I want to start the next podcast which we have with this uh, about democracy, social structure and uh, economic freedom. But I think we've done enough for this episode. We'll probably pick it up at the next one. If I can just add one more thing that uh, for folks who are interested in the books that we are reading, I mean, I do recommend to just log on to our website, uh, in and sign up for our uh, weekly institutional newsletter, the Takshashila Dispatch. Uh, one part of the dispatch is dedicated to the books that we are reading and you'll find recommendations, not just from the two, three of us, but from the entire, uh, all, everyone at Takshashila. So, uh, and you'll find uh, the diversity of reading over there. So that's a good thing if, you, if you're interested in book recommendations also on a weekly basis, you get at least one recommendation. All right. Excellent. Thanks, both of you. And looking forward to the next conversation we have about this. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashila.inst or our website takshashila.org.in.